Good afternoon. Thank you so much for being with us on this Monday. It is February 13th. Coming up, we've got a great new contest for you this week. Some tickets to give away. And here's the hint. If you're a Pink Floyd fan, you're going to like the prize in today's contest and the contest that will go every day this week. We're also going to talk to some local volunteers as they have returned from a humanitarian mission to Ukraine. Find out what it was like on the ground and what's next for them. We are starting, though, continuing the conversation about the objects that have been shot down from North American airspace. We heard from the Prime Minister earlier today, Justin Trudeau, saying that while he is unable to say what the object shot down over the Yukon this weekend was, he did say, obviously, there was a pattern to the number of objects that have been detected flying in North American airspace. We've also been hearing from the White House. Here's just part of a news conference that took place a little while ago or took place earlier today explaining what the United States is saying about the objects. In, certainly in, well, in both cases, they're, they're different. I mean, I think we need to separate the Chinese spy balloon. We knew what it was. We knew where it was going. We knew what it was trying to do. And by not taking it down, I mean, that was also a huge payload. Like I said, the size of three school buses. So really the option of shooting that down over land wasn't a legitimate option because somebody really could have gotten hurt. And we used the, the, the time available to us, knowing what this thing was all about. We used that time to study it, to learn from it, to collect on it, then taking it down at the earliest opportunity in the water. And we have retrieved some of that debris off the bottom, and we're studying that. Hang on a second. I'll be right there. Um, but So let's separate that from these other three. And these other three, what are some of the differences? Altitude's a big difference. The threshold now? A risk of civilian aircraft? Just, just, let, me, let me get through this. And then altitude's different. The Chinese spy balloon was at 60,000 plus, well outside commercial air traffic uh, concerns. These three were right on the border of it. So there was a legitimate concern there. Chinese spy balloon, we knew exactly what that thing was. And we knew what it was trying to do. And we saw it, Jackie, as it slowed down, sped up, maneuvered a little bit, um, trying to get a look at what we believe to be sensitive military sites. These other three, they didn't have propulsion. They weren't being maneuvered. It was basically they were being, being driven uh, by, the, by the wind. We don't think, we don't, we don't know for sure whether they had a surveillance aspect to them, but we can't rule it out. So there was a little bit, there was enough uncertainty there uh, that, again, out of an abundance of caution, doing the prudent thing, the president directed that they get taken down. And I, I get where you're going. Is this the standard going forward? And we're going we're gonna to dive into this. We're going to learn from these three events. Um, we're going to continue to study what happened. We're going to have an interagency effort that helps us get around the policy implications here. And we'll see where this goes. But All right, that from a White House press briefing just a short time ago. We wanted to learn more about this. So joining us now to talk about what we know so far about these objects is Christian Luprecht. Christian Luprecht is a professor in leadership at the Royal Military College at Queen's University. He's also a defense expert and joins us now. Christian, thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure, Jill. Certainly a lot of questions, and I was listening to the White House news conference earlier today. We heard from our Prime Minister as well. What are your thoughts, I guess, first, just on the number of objects, the the Chinese spy balloon, now these other objects being shot down? What is your take on it? 
Well, clearly, a malicious actor is probing our air defenses and our airspace. Uh, and they're looking to learn what it takes for us to detect these items, uh, what it takes for us to identify them, and they're trying to understand how and when we will respond, both militarily and politically. In other words, they're probing for vulnerabilities. Um, the spy components of these balloons are intended to collect intelligence over sensitive military sites, uh, precisely so that our adversaries can train their missiles to penetrate our airspace and to take out our command and control infrastructure. So this is clearly an adversary signaling that North America is no longer safe, that they have the capability and intent to violate our sovereignty. And with the numerous objects, so we know obviously that the, that the first one, the 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 balloon that China claimed was a weather station, which we know it wasn't. But we know at least we know kind of what or at least who owned that. We still don't know at this point who's behind the other three. How concerning is that? Well, in the past, we always had answers to these questions. We knew our adversaries' capabilities, and we knew the intent they had for these capabilities. Uh, and that kept North America safe for decades. So the fact that we don't have answers to these questions, that in itself should be disconcerting. Now, there's only two actors that would really have the intent to engage in this type of activity, and that is Russia and China. And the more likely actor is China here. I think it is no surprise that these balloons started coming days after the U.S. announced a basing rights in the Philippines. I think this is a signal by China upset about the U.S. moving further into its neighborhood to signal to the U.S., if you move into our neighborhood, we will move into yours. In fact, we're going to do one better. We're going to take geostrategic competition right above the skies. And what about kind of the height at which they were flying? And again, a big difference. So when you look at the 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 Chinese, the spy balloon was, I think it was 60,000 feet plus, whereas the other three, uh, one of the concerns was that it was uh, potentially dangerous for air traffic. And, and so what about the difference then? Again, the difference between that first balloon and these other three flying objects. Yeah, so there's other differences too, right? So they're different shapes and sizes. They're taking different flight paths at different heights. So this is precisely what you would want to do when you're trying to learn how North American air defense works. Uh, that's why my interpretation is uh, this is a malicious actor trying to understand more about the North American Aerospace Defense Command, uh, its capabilities, and how it is set up. And ultimately, you would want to learn that because you would want to attempt to defeat those capacities. How important will it be then as far as crews, I know, have been retrieving some of the debris, uh, some of it over close uh, to the Yukon or in the Yukon area, as well as some that has fallen into the ocean on the other coast. Uh, How important or what do you think we will be able to learn from that debris retrieval? Well, I mean, it fell from a pretty significant height. So um, it'll be an investigative challenge to put together um, what was on the balloon. But we can probably learn a fair bit about uh, the balloon technology in and of itself uh, and perhaps some of the other payload associated uh, with that balloon. Uh, Investigatively, we have pretty good techniques 
Uh, and one thing the U.S. will be very keen to learn is whether China has espionage technology uh, of which the U.S. was either not aware at all or if it has technology uh, that uh, the U.S. did not anticipate uh, the Chinese either have or would be able to deploy over the continent of North America. Because clearly there's a lot you can learn from satellites, you can learn uh, from trying to use radar and stuff. But uh, um, the ability to violate our sovereignty, uh, this will provide some pretty unprecedented data to an adversary. We are continuing talking with Christian Luprecht, who is a defense expert. He's also a professor in leadership at Royal Military College, and he works at Queen's University as well. Also just written a book called Polar Cousins, Comparing Antarctic and Arctic Geostrategic Futures. And we'll talk a little bit more about that and how that plays in to what we're seeing happening with these objects that are being shot down in North American airspace. But Christian, I wanted to ask you as well, the White House spokesperson earlier today, was asked about ongoing discussions between the United States and China. Uh, he said that there have been some private discussions, but I'm curious, how do you think the current relationship between the West and China is playing into this? Yeah, I would say ambiguous. Of course, uh, Xi Jinping humiliated the prime minister at the Bali meeting, making it very clear that he has complete disregard and disrespect for this country and doesn't take uh, this country seriously. So chances are nobody in China is really talking to Canada or Canadian officials on this. Um, So this will be a bilateral conversation with the United States. Uh, And that the signals on that are ambiguous. What was interesting is that the Chinese propaganda did not come out swinging with its usual anti-American nationalism that we had seen in the past. Uh, and that probably is part of, sort of uh, what suggests that Xi Jinping is already in trouble economically and so forth. So uh, that the Chinese don't want to use this to, to don't want this to destroy their relationship with the U.S. or incur sort of further uh, types of uh, economic impediments from the U.S. At the same time, um, China did not pick up the deconfliction line when the Secretary of Defense called in order to have discussions about this. But we've also seen from the U.S. side, if you notice, that after the initial balloon, um, there is less information. Uh, The quality of the information that is being provided by the White House is lower, uh, and it also seems to take longer for that information to come out. So it seems there's a decision on both sides here not to instrumentalize this for political purposes and to have adult conversations Uh, about behavior by a malicious actor uh, that clearly is unacceptable and runs counter to uh, our norms and interests. And that's why I think we've also seen a political decision here to engage differently in terms of deterrence. That is to say, the clear signal now is when we find one of these objects, we're shooting it down. And and Christian, I'm, I'm curious too, and certainly one of the questions out there has been, is it that there are more of these objects now and that's why they're being shot down? Or is it possible uh, there have been these objects in the skies before, but they haven't posed a risk or, or they've continued on, they've not been shot down? Is it that we're seeing more and that's why we're seeing more shot down? Or is it a change in policy? Based on the information released by U.S. intelligence so far, it is both. It is that in the past, we missed some of the passes uh, by these objects over North America because our radar was not trained to detect them. So as to say, if you're not looking for them, chances are you're not going to find them. At the same time, there does appear to have been a proliferation 
of these objects, which makes me think that the timing is not accidental here and that there is uh, both a uh, an adversarial intelligence collection purpose here, but there's also a broader political message and signal that an adversary is looking to send with these balloons to the U.S. administration. Do you think it's likely we will see more? Um, well, uh, certainly I think there is more to be gleaned and understood about uh, North American continental defense. Um, but uh, these probably diminishing returns at this point from sending more, in part because now that the U.S. is looking for them, they probably wouldn't make it very far over North American airspace since these balloons have to come over the Arctic uh, as they're going as they're going sort of with the prevailing winds. Nonetheless, the signal has clearly been 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 sent. Uh, the intelligence that's been gathered will allow an adversary to calibrate their missiles to better penetrate North American air defense and to go after our command and control systems should they choose to do so. And they've also sent a broader political signal that North America is vulnerable. And I think they're doing that to undermine and constrain our democratic decision making because the message to Washington is today it's balloons. Tomorrow it might be a missile. Just be careful what decisions you make. What's well, uh, certainly uh, concerning, to say the least. Uh, Chris, Kristen, you mentioned the Arctic, and I did want to uh, quickly just to ask you about, you have a new book out called Polar Cousins, uh, looking at the Arctic as one of those regions. Does this play into that, or, or we're talking about kind of defense and, and, and strategy and, and more in general in those areas? It absolutely plays into that. Most uh, Canadians and probably most North Americans would look sort of for challenges coming uh, from the Pacific or from the Atlantic Oceans. And it turns out that the greatest challenge to our sovereignty from adversaries has always come via the Arctic because that is the shortest flight path, whether it is a balloon, a long-range bomber, uh, an intercontinental ballistic missile, a hypersonic missile, uh, or other type of projectile that an adversary is looking to send. And those projectiles don't need to make it to the continental United States to have their disruptive effect because of how interconnected the continent is. So not only is Canada and Canadian territory very much in play, but ultimately, geostrategically, the poles, both the Antarctic as well as the Arctic, are very much in play. And uh, this is an uh, indication of the extent to which geostrategic competition is now happening at the poles and over the poles, uh, and ultimately being able to safeguard continental security uh, at the poles and keeping geostrategic competition there in check is integral for global stability more broadly. All right. Christian Luprecht, thank you so much for your time today. Appreciate it. It's been my pleasure. Thank you, Jill. Well, some local volunteers have returned from what is being described as a successful humanitarian mission to Ukraine. We wanted to find out a bit more about what they saw on the ground and what happened during this mission. So joining us is the trip organizer, Bob Beckett. Bob, thank you so much for being back with us to talk more about this today. Oh, my pleasure, Jill. Thank you. Uh, you uh, were there with many others, and I know you also uh, come from a, an education background. So what was it like being on the ground and being part of this mission? Um, it was very rewarding, uh, very emotional this time around. We were we were there in June of last year, and this was a, a bit of a different focus um, this time around. Last, last trip, 
Uh, our primary objective was to uh, feed displaced Ukrainians, and we raised enough funds to feed over 81,000 uh, Ukrainians. And, and this, this time around, we had a four-prong approach, uh, uh, providing medical supplies and equipment, providing fire rescue equipment, providing educational supplies, um, and working on a stewardship uh, curriculum, uh, and supporting a local um, not-for-profit group uh, that produces prosthetics, uh, Victoria Hand Project. So those were the, the four primary uh, features. Um, certainly there were changes from June, uh, given the, the magnitude of the war, the, the increased number of, of uh, uh, military and civilian injuries, the lack of infrastructure, no power, no heat. So it was a, a very different trip this time around. And where were you or where was the team kind of based while you did this? I'm going to limit um, some of the areas just for security reasons, but we were based primarily out of uh, Lutz, uh, western Ukraine. Uh, We did go uh, up towards the Belarus border and back down south. So there were were four communities that we focused our, our efforts in in western Ukraine. All right. And what was it like then, uh, like you said, different this time around, but this was uh, an eight-day mission. What kind of a response did you get from people that you encountered while you were there? Well, the, the first the first morning that uh, we were set to de- deploy, uh, we walked out of our hotel room and we were invited to participate, uh, sadly, in um, uh, falling in with the military as they honoured two of their fallen comrades, and that was a, a regular occurrence uh, in that community. And as we found out uh, in all the other communities that we visited, it, it was becoming uh, an all-too-common uh, occurrence for communities both large and small. So that's that's how we started off, uh, getting that dose of, of reality. Um, but the, the reception based on the relationships that we had established in June was nothing short of, of uh, uh, remarkable, you know, given what they've been through. They, they were so pleased that, that we came back representing, um, you know, uh, our communities, British Columbia, uh, and the support that we brought, that we continued to stand uh, with and alongside our Ukrainian brothers and sisters. And I understand as well, uh, one of the um, board chairs, the school board chairs out of Souk, uh, talked about uh, education and talked about the similarities and I think the things that, that we all have in common uh, that maybe we don't think about. And that was uh, when he was talking uh, about uh, uh, donating school supplies or being at schools. What was that like? Well, I, it, this was uh, Chair Ravi Palmer's uh, first humanitarian uh, mission. And he was uh, overwhelmed with, um, again, with not only the hosp- hospitality, but the the emotions associated with uh, Ukrainian children sharing their stories, taking us into the bomb shelters, uh, giving us letters to take back to our community that the children had written during a five-hour stay um, in um, in one of the, the bomb shelters. Um, you know, the, the evening we went to a school to drop off some school supplies and, uh, you know, the children had a performance for us and they had to do it with, with, uh, cell phone lights from, from the, um, the teachers because the power's off as a result of the, the strikes on the infrastructure. Um, so he was overwhelmed. He was absolutely amazed and, 
is so looking forward to developing uh, stewardship, uh, global stewardship uh, program uh, in SD62, because it's important to teach our children um, that the world, you know, that, that your own community is not just, you know, your community. It's the whole globe that we have to recognize as, as being one community. Um, the other thing that uh, I'm really excited about is that uh, Chair Ravi is going to, uh, has invited um, two um, high school students from Ukraine to come visit and spend some time with us. And then we're going to take them up to Banfield Marine Sciences Center to get a post-secondary education uh, experience uh, this spring. So that's really exciting as well. Oh, it is. It's great to see how the relationships continue going, that even though it's a, it was a, an eight-day mission, there's obviously going to be a lot more coming from that. Uh, you mentioned the medical equipment as well, and I know when we talked before, we talked about a, a more kind of cost-effective ways of, of getting prosthetics and getting those to people that need them. What was it like as far as, I know you, you delivered a lot of medical equipment and supplies, so, so what was that part of the trip? like that for me that was the primary focus i mean i you know as a retired fire chief it was great to bring over all the fire rescue equipment and to purchase stuff there Um, but the the medical equipment supplies are so urgently needed and i'm I'm thrilled to say that um, we partnered up with um, arbutus medical a company in vancouver very innovative company um, that's producing a relatively low-cost orthopedic drill set uh, for um, the orthopedic surgeons. And we brought over three sets, uh, gave them to three different hospitals um, <clears throat> that, that didn't have orthopedic drills. They were delighted. Today they sent me pictures of the drills being used in the ORs. Um, you know, there's, there's so many traumatic injuries uh, on the front lines and the, the troops are being sent back to Western Ukraine where they've been operating on them. And to have the drill sets uh, is such a, an asset for them. And again, to get the pictures of, the, of these drills that um, are being um, put together, these, these sets um, by a, a BC company is, uh, you know, I'm very proud of that. Um, and we know that, that um, they need more. They need more sets. They need more accessories. And we're going to be fundraising over the next few weeks to try to uh, purchase some more kit for them. Because that must make such a difference. And, uh, I mean, it's a sad and absolutely horrible part of this in, is that we're talking about amputees and people who have lost limbs during this conflict, but that must be uh, such a, a welcome uh, piece of uh, medical equipment and supplies that, that doctors are then able to work with this and help people. We, we, uh, we brought over uh, 18 hockey bags, big hockey bags, overweight, full of equipment that Air Canada helped us with, and we're very appreciative of that. It, it, it arrived, the, um, the uh, medical team that met us divided it up between two hospitals in the front line, and, and it was gone that day. Um, but I, I do have to tell you a little story, Joe. You know, we, we toured, you know, a number of hospitals. The last hospital was a regional hospital, uh, sorry, a regional children's hospital, and we were down in the neonatal uh, ICU uh, intensive care unit and talking to the, the uh, doctor in charge. And he was telling us about the increased number of um, premature babies that are being born as a result of 
the trauma, the you know, uh, it, um, the the conditions that they're they're in. He says we're seeing we're seeing children, babies, 500 grams um, being born, and there I was, you know, talking to the surgical team. And, you know, behind me is these, these sweet, sweet little babies. And, and, and you know, we think of the, the military being injured, but you never think of these newborns that are impacted by this horrific and terrible war. No, that's a, a, an interesting point or a very good point. You're right. We see and when we see the pictures of the, the fighting and the conflict so much, it, it's, it's difficult to think of everybody or, or just how far, far reaching the impact is. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, what will be next then? I know, uh, again, back from this trip, do you have plans for more humanitarian work or, or what's next? Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, in, in all my humanitarian work, I, I recognize and we recognize that uh, it's not so much what you think they need. It's a matter of you tell us what you want. So uh, Ravi asked the, his school counterparts, you know, what is it that you need for us to do? I asked the fire chief, how can we help? And uh, same thing with, um, you know, with our focus on medical. Um, tell us what you need. Give us a written list. We'll go back to BC um, and we'll see if we can fundraise for that or we'll reach out to the various health authorities. Ask them, look, at here's what's being requested. If it's sitting surplus in one of your basements, give it to us. We'll get it shipped over to them. And uh, which I would imagine you'd get a, a great response or people, if they can help, will we'll be more than happy to, to step up and to do that. Yeah, I, I am a little bit concerned that there's some bureaucracy associated with uh, the Ministry of Health. And um, that's something that uh, we can work through. Um, I think, again, if it's something that's surplus and it's not going to be used, um, certainly there's a huge need in Ukraine and the Ukrainian people are so grateful to receive the help um, from from folks from BC. So I, I'm optimistic we'll be able to cut through some of that red tape. All right. Well, Bob Beckett, thanks for again coming back on the show for talking about this. Uh, just a great things that you and the team were able to do. So thank you so much for the update. Thanks so much, Joe. All the best. The Vancouver Park Board is considering three options when it comes to the future of a bike lane in Stanley Park. It's expected there will be a vote on this uh, this evening. We checked in with one of the Park Board Commissioners last week, uh, taking a look at the three different options. Uh, They include keeping the bike lane as it currently is, but removing the busier section around the park entrance roundabout, as well as near Lumberman's Arch, or maintaining the bike lane around the park and keeping a single lane for vehicles or removing the bike lane inside the park and making some changes that way. So it will likely cause a lot or spark a lot of discussion. There will be more debate, I'm sure, before that final decision is made. We wanted to talk a little bit more about it today, though, and joining us to do that is Jamie Borisov, Director of Make Plus Applied Research Team at the BC Institute of Technology. And this is research that focuses on the development of technology that helps people living with disabilities. Jamie, thank you so much for being with us. Hey, Jill. Uh, glad to be here. Uh, what are your thoughts on, on what the board is looking at and deciding today and what you would like to see in the park? Well, I think i, I got to think about this from my own perspective, obviously, and, and not as a, um, an employee of BCIT or representing any other, other groups. 
I'm a, a wheelchair user over 30 years ago now that I've been a full-time wheelchair user. Somebody who gets around the city in uh, by driving, like many other people, like most people in the city probably, but also someone who uses a hand cycle, which is a, a wheel mobility device uh, that's akin to a bicycle. And I have found that over the last uh, about two and a half, three years since COVID, there's been many options that opened up for, for me, uh, especially with regards to Stanley Park. That's due to the Beach Avenue protected bike lane that now exists. As someone like myself who's in a, a, a very wide, um, not so um, nimble, I can't turn very quickly, for instance, on my hand bike, I'm, I, I sit very low. Being protected by a lane that has barriers to car traffic is, is very important, and it's important for all people on cyclists and, and thinking about other active transportation options. So that opened up uh, uh, all sorts of possibilities. Same with other pieces of infrastructure like the Arbutus Greenway, for instance, and other uh, lanes around the city. So that was one thing that happened, and I started going to Stanley Park more often. But the other thing was the protected bike lane in Stanley Park that was created uh, during COVID. And that, again, created all sorts of possibilities for me. If I go to Stanley Park and have to hand cycle on the seawall, for instance, and this is the option that uh, many people advocate for as so-called returning to the pre-COVID era of full access and full accessibility, well, that's a bit of misinformation that people are um, bandying about in, in various forms because the seawall is not accessible to someone like myself. I can't ride my hand bike throughout the entire seawall. There's barriers, there's gates that I can't get through. And so there's all sorts of places on the, on the wall that I can't access. So I need to have another piece of infrastructure. And in, in this case, an ideal one is the existing bike lane that exists right now. And, and the other uh, piece, Jill, that people are often talking about is how people with disabilities need car access and parking access to Stanley Park. And the only way that happens is with two car lanes. Well, that's not at all true, right? It's not at all true. Um, absolutely, people with disabilities need full auto access, full car access, good parking options all over the park. And that exists right now. And it exists with a single car lane or it exists with two car lanes. So th those are just a couple, I think, pieces of information I think I'd like to you know, bring to the table and uh, especially with a show like yours. Sure. And so with the parking spaces, because that has been an ongoing uh, concern with, with many saying that the way the park is configured now with that separated bike lane, with the temporary bike lane, that it removed a lot of that parking or made it really difficult to access mobility parking. But is that not what you have found in the park? My understanding, and of course, I haven't used all parking spots, all uh, parking lots in the park in, in my car. Um, really, no one has. But my understanding is the three options on the table that will be voted on tonight, all of them, um, and, and it exists right now as well, have um, parking access at all major sites in the park, as it did before COVID. Um, I do understand there's been a very small percentage of parking spots taken away from various aspects of the park uh, for the bike lane. But uh, again, my understanding is that well over 90% of all parking spots in the park have been retained and will be retained uh, moving forward as they were in pre-COVID conditions. And so um, access is there. And do we need more wheelchair accessible parking spots? I think we need that uh, throughout the city, actually, with aging uh, demographics and, and all sorts of other things. But um, 
right now people with disabilities can park throughout the park. All right. And when you talk about how it kind of it opened it up to you, and I'm glad that you brought that up because there is, I think, a tendency uh, for people to say, well, th- this lane was brought in during when the pandemic was in its early stages. And it was because bikes were moved off of the seawall to give people a bit more space. Bikes can now go back onto the seawall. If you're a leisurely uh, cyclist, it's not it's not a great place if you're a hardcore uh, speedy cyclist. But I'm glad you mentioned that because there are some really narrow turns. And like you said, gates and things on that. So so it makes sense that you wouldn't be able to access that. But could you ride or, or in the past, had you been able to ride on the streets, um, on Park Drive with with traffic, say, without being in a separated lane? Well, I certainly have done that before. And that is a scenario that in the past has not been inviting to me and has not made me access the park very often because of, of safety concerns, like I outlined at the beginning, being um, lower to the ground, uh, much like a kid actually riding a bike, um, it's it's harder to be seen. Um, I, I am not as safe in traffic, and many people aren't as safe in traffic as, again, the, as you said, the elite um, cyclists that can, can ride maybe the same speed uh, as, as the car traffic and that sort of thing. So, um, I think, and again, this, I'm not an expert in this, but if you look at the research, I think having protected bike lanes brings cyclists, brings families, and brings all uh, people of all abilities into um, areas where that infrastructure is provided. It's nothing but good things happen. And so the way it is now, though, with the, with the the bike lane that's in place, that's on Park Drive. Uh, so have you have you done the entire park in your bike or on on your hand cycle and, and kind of and been able to navigate the whole park to see? Because it doesn't the the orange cones don't kind of go throughout the entire park. I know there's some parts where it's still the the bike lane that was separated, kind of beside the sidewalk where it was before. Uh, d- does it make sense the way it is right now in its entirety? Um, I have cycled it um, dozens and dozens of times um, since 2020, since there's been a protected bike lane throughout uh, the whole park. Does it make sense to have uh, orange pylons, orange cones? Well, no, it was a temporary measure only. What what does make sense is having um, a barrier in place. Uh, I think it's what the parks board call uh, or the city calls mountable curbs which are the same type as those used on Beach Avenue and many other places in the city. And I believe that's their option B that they're voting on for tonight. Um, I hope they vote for that option, is these these curbs that do separate the bike lane from, from traffic. And they look better. They're aesthetically pleasing. Uh, and again, I know that was one of the issues that people had is that the orange cones in Stanley Park is a bit of an eyesore, and they are. But um, they are effective still of, of keeping bikes separated from cars. And do you think with option B, that, that that one, does it address the concerns or as far as uh, people saying that it does, traffic does get backed up when it's one lane of traffic on Park Drive, uh, you might get stuck uh, behind the horse and, and carriage uh, that goes through that park. Do you think that does address those issues so that everybody can kind of enjoy the park and have access to the park and, and without one group feeling like they're kind of being left out? Um, I can't speak directly to that, Jill. I'm not um, an expert in in the, the whole engineering report that was performed. My understanding is that all three options that they're voting on for tonight all have similar traffic flow um, effects in the end, and that's because there's car bottlenecks all over the city leading to the park and leading out of the park and within the park. And so having um, 
a few kilometers of two lanes doesn't solve the problem when there's a bottleneck somewhere else. And I think we can speak to all traffic and throughout, you know, the city or any city for that matter in, in those, you know, bridges and otherwise as well. No, it's it's very true. And anybody that's been sitting in it, whether you're in a, a car or kind of stuck on a bike, would know that all too well. Uh, Jamie, is there anything else you would like to see in the park or, or, or from your perspective of this and with the options that are on the table? Is there anything you all, else that you think would, would make it easier, would make it safer, uh, would make it so people feel better, or perhaps more confident to people, uh, either with a wheelchair or with, with a, a hand cycle bike like yours that would make it um, more inviting to them? Um, well, I think we have to provide options for everybody, obviously. And I think one important thing, too, to, to point out is we have to have options where if you want to be moving at 25 kilometers an hour like a commuter, um, having a protected bike lane and, and riding with everybody else is, is a great option. I do that myself all the time. But also, I want to actually go down to the seawall sometimes. I want to go to Third Beach. I want to go to English Bay. And I can't park my bike, lock it up, and walk away from it. And I've actually been, um, what's the phrase, I've been accosted by people sometimes for being on my bike at, at the beach or at, at, at um, English Bay on the seawall because they point to these giant orange signs that say cyclists should be on Beach Avenue on, on, the, on, the, on the bike lane. And I'm like, well, what am I supposed to do, Jill? I'm, I can't walk, right? I can't right. park my bike. And so, so that's just like one, it's kind of a quirky little example of how, you know, obviously we have to treat each other better and, and look at people's needs and, and desires and, and, and not, you know, focus on, well, the signage is just uh, not appropriate, right? Uh, we should have signs that say respect everybody's needs and everybody's um, uh, abilities and, and, and desires to get around. And um, it's, it's a question of speed. And certainly when I'm, on the on the bike path, um, I, I might go 30 kilometers an hour because I have an electric assist hand cycle. But when I'm on the seawall, I won't do that. I will go 10 kilometers an hour, eight kilometers an hour, like walking speed. Right. And so it's about being respectful for everybody. Um, that, that's that's one thought. And so the seawall itself can still be uh, improved. I think it still needs to be re- improved because yes, I want a protected bike lane, but I also want a accessible seawall as well. And, and that helps everybody. It helps mothers with, with strollers, parents with uh, strollers. Um, it helps parents with bike trailers for their kids. Um, it, it's, it's win-win for everybody that way. All right. Well, we are going to certainly be watching to see what the park board decides if they do, in fact, vote this evening. Jamie, thank you so much for joining us again and for bringing your perspective to this conversation. I appreciate it. No, you're welcome, Jill. Happy to be here. Thanks. Well, as you just heard on the news, Vancouver's Chinatown is getting almost $2 million. This is in federal infrastructure funding to help revitalize the community. And joining us to talk a bit more about this is Carol Lee, chair of the Vancouver Chinatown Foundation. Carol, thank you so much for being with us. Hi, Jill. Thanks so much for having me on the show. Well, it was a much anticipated (laughs) announcement made earlier today. What are your thoughts on this federal, this infrastructure money that is coming to Chinatown? Well, I mean, obviously for the community, it's very, very exciting. Uh, We had Minister Sajan here make the announcement today, and I think it's going to be a turning point for the neighborhood and for the over, you know, 250 small businesses that call it home. It's a a great start. I mean, there's lots to do here, but um, this is definitely a great start. And, you know, you're seeing an alignment um, with all levels of government. I mean, um, Mayor Sim and the city council have already made it a priority 
And uh, we've been also working with the provincial government, and they're very supportive. So, so I think we're moving things in the right direction, but this certainly is a very welcome news, and we're very grateful to uh, Minister Sujan and the Canadian government for having faith in us. And, and with the announcement coming from the federal government, are there strings attached as far as what it can be spent on, or can you take it and put it wherever you think, or, or, or whoever is kind of in charge of that? Does it go to wherever it's deemed the need is the most? Not really. I mean, the way it is, and I think it's the way most um, grants operate, is, I mean, there's definitely pretty strict guidelines on what it can be spent on. And uh, this came through the uh, Tourism Relief Fund. And so, um, you know, we you submit an, an application and, and things that you want to spend the money on. And so for us, it was infrastructure and, and some lighting um, and other things that we thought would help bring people back to Chinatown, um, where they felt it was more welcoming and probably a bit safer. And when we look at that list then, what would you say is the top priority or what would you like to see the money go to, say, first off? Well, for us, it was sort of lighting up our cultural um, icons. So things like the Sun Yat-sen Garden, uh, the Chinese Cultural Center, we have the Millennium Gate and also the Chinatown Storytelling Center, having it lit up at night. And I think, it, you know, it's, it's unfortunate because right now things sort of shut down at six o'clock, but there's so much beauty here. And so, you know, we're going to also be um, lighting up some of the facades of the historic buildings. And so we're hoping that um, people want to come down here sort of after six o'clock and see how beautiful it is. And, and do you think that will be enough to, to revitalize that or to make people feel more comfortable and to, to get people coming back? I mean, that's just sort of some of the things we're doing. But no, I mean, I think we all know, and, and Minister Sajan also mentioned, as did Ken Sim today, that, you know, this is a step in the right direction. But, you know, lots more needs to be done. But we're very happy that we're making this first step uh, together. And and I know so many people were pleased with this and, and also very happy to do this as well or to, to get this federal funding. What about, though, and we've talked about it, unfortunately, we've talked about it so much on the show, the, the graffiti, vandalism, businesses that are suffering because of broken windows and repeated attacks against them. I mean, that's not going to go away because of a, a federal funding grant. But do you see this as kind of part of the equation to dealing with that? Yeah, I think we're going to have to do multiple things to try and get us to a place where, you know, the, the neighborhood feels revitalized. And I know that the city has, um, they had an initiative uplift Chinatown. And so some of the money that has been dedicated to Chinatown will be to deal with graffiti and things like that. So I think it's got to be a multi-pronged approach. There's not going to be one silver bullet. And I think there's multiple groups that are trying to help, which is a wonderful thing. And to to use this, and like you said, for illumination and for lighting up the buildings, so when it's dark, and especially this time of year, when although the days are getting longer again, when it does get dark so early, uh, people don't feel safe, I think, in a lot right. of scenarios, especially given the number of attacks that we've seen against people. Yeah, so, so you know, it, was, it had a dual purpose. It's like for safety and, and beautification. And, you know, there's other money that's going to be spent on the Light Up Chinatown uh, festival. There's other beautification elements to this grant, but um, you can imagine 1.8 million is an, an incredible amount. But over six blocks, you know, you have to pick where you want to start. And so we thought that this was a good way that there would be, you know, a, a visible impact. And so you start this momentum of people saying, "Oh, it's looking a bit better," and you know, I'm going to go down there and take check it out. And I think that that's 
the way we have to approach it. I mean, money isn't, you know, it's a big part of the solution, but it's, it's about community coming together. And I think that was another wonderful thing that we saw today where, you know, we had representatives from all three levels of government um, with um, Minister Jaden, like, leading the charge. So, you know, we've got community backing here. And I think that it's it's really exciting because we've been a, a beleaguered community <laughs> since the beginning of COVID. Uh, and so it's uh, it's so nice that all of a sudden we think that, you know, things are going to change. And you mentioned, too, kind of the area we're talking about or if we're looking at six blocks specifically and, and that area that has seen so many challenges. How do you use the money, though, and, and use it for revitalizing when your closest neighbours are also having a lot of challenges? Uh, the downtown east side, parts of Gastown and making sure that that everybody is kind of in this and, and that all of these neighbourhoods are, are coming back. You're right. I mean, there's we at the foundation, at the Chinatown Foundation, I mean, it was a big part of our mandate. And one of the first things that we decided we were going to invest in was social housing in the downtown east side. So we have a 230-unit social housing project at 58 Hastings that will be finished next year. And you're exactly right, because we felt that for us to revitalize our neighborhood, we really needed to help also our neighbors. And I think that that approach... uh, Amongst all of us, you know, we've got Strathcona, we've got um, Gastown. Um, it, it really is starting to feel like a community now. We're all trying to work together. And uh, and so you're right. It, it You can't just help one neighborhood. They all kind of, we all need to be working and, you know, working and, and going in the same direction. And and do you think that, that that will, as far as the revitalizing, and I know you mentioned some of the uh, the places where it will be spent, again, lighting and, and really uh, making sure that, that the, the beauty of Chinatown is, is showcased and comes through. How do you balance that, though, when we also are talking about uh, there, there are so many new buildings and there have been a lot of changes in the neighborhood? And do you think that this will also help? preserve what makes Chinatown special and what makes it Chinatown, but also seeing it change and grow and become, um, I mean, it's still become a kind of a, a newer community, I guess. Yeah, I mean, you know, our motto here is it's really like honoring the past, shaping the future. So it's that fine line of making sure that we remember the roots and, and the history of the neighborhood. But, you know, change is inevitable. And so how do we, you know, go forward? incorporating, you know, there's new people are coming to the neighborhood all the time and how do we make them feel welcome, but still remembering the roots of, of where we came from. I mean, this is a neighborhood that was um, founded about 135 years ago and it's got deep cultural history. And I think that, you know, some of the people that I get to meet here, you know, really do feel that it is special to be in the neighborhood and they're cognizant of that, that cultural heritage that needs to be preserved. All right. Well, it's a very uh, exciting day, and I know uh, you and, and so many others are really looking forward to what this funding is going to do. Uh, it, it is, uh, like we said, 1.8, almost uh, $2 million. Uh, will more be needed, though, do you think, as far as, uh, obviously, this isn't going to fix everything. Uh, what, no. what would you like to see happen next? Um, well, I think that the next thing that we're, we'll be trying to do, at least here at the foundation, is kind of a a sustained economic revitalization. So, you know, how do you work with businesses, the ones that are already here, the legacy business? How do you attract more business to come? You know, how do you, you know, engage people from outside to to want them to come back to Chinatown? So it's a multi-pronged approach. There's no easy silver bullet solution. But 
um, certainly funding and support from government is a big step in the right direction. All right. Carol, we will leave it there for today. But thank you so much for joining us. It was great to talk to you about this. Thank you so much for having me on the show, Jill.